At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Confession is a necessary habit to have in our walk with Christ. It's something that can be uncomfortable or bring up feelings of guilt and shame. Even though we may be hesitant to confess our sins, He reminds us in His Word how vital confession is to our relationship with Him. In Psalm 51, David comes in full surrender, bringing his sin, shame, and guilt to God, asking for a renewed spirit and a cleansed heart. Join us in a new series titled, Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, where we'll learn why practicing confession is so important. Amen, amen. If you have your Bible, electronic device, I want to encourage you to take that out and turn with me uh, to the book of Psalm. We're going to be in Psalm 51 this morning. Tyler opened up Psalm 51 last week for us, and we're going to continue on here for the next couple weeks, just going a couple verses at a time um, as we're walking through this series. Have you ever noticed that it seems that more and more often today, people are not owning their mistakes? Have you noticed that? seems like we live in a world, we live in a culture now where, where people just don't own up to the fact that they make mistakes. They hurt us, they harm us, and they're just like, hey, it's not my fault, I didn't do anything wrong. And when we live in that way, it, it leads us to a place of frustration, right? It leads us to a place of just wanting justice, wanting uh, just for allowing our voice to be heard because we've been harmed by someone or something, I think this frustration, I know this frustration was felt through all of the city of Detroit during week 17 of the Lions football season. Remember, when this is the, the weeks, week 17, that they go down to Dallas and they play the Cowboys. And what's on the line is a potential first round bye where they have an opportunity to, to win the division. And they go down there, they're playing the game, and you guys remember watching it, you know, the whole time we're like, yeah, we're, yeah, I feel, this feels good, this feels right, I think they're going to win, I think they're going to win. And we come into the last two minutes of uh, the game, and they're down, and they make that drive all the way down, and they score a touchdown, and the score is 19 to 20, and there's 23 seconds left on the clock, and you're like, oh, maybe, maybe what should they do, kick a field goal, go to overtime, what, what's going to happen? No, the coach decides we're going to go for it. And Dan Gamble gambles again. He's like, let's do this. So they have Taylor Decker, who's a lineman. He checks in with the ref and he says, hey, I'm an eligible receiver. So he goes up to the line. Everyone thinks everything's okay. Uh, Jared Goff drops back. He throws a pass to the lineman, Taylor Decker. And he catches the ball, and we think they've gone for two. They've just gone up for one. And the whole city of Detroit erupts in one grandiose, like, big scream. It's like, I can't believe this is actually happening. And then in an instant, we see the yellow flag come out. And our hearts sink. And the call is that Decker was an ineligible receiver. And we know, we watch the tape, everyone watches the tape. We watch it over and over again. And De Decker did check in. We know it. Everyone saw it. But what we find out after that is we look at the disgust of all of that. Even the NFL comes back and is like, after they watch the tape, they're like, man, that was a missed call. That was a blown call. I would not want to be that ref with all the death threats and everything else like that. But he blew it. And the crazy thing about him blowing it, it's one thing in the middle of a game like to have all of that commotion going on and, and for you to, to miss something. You and I miss stuff all the time, right? 
We're guilty of that. But it's one thing to miss something. But it's another thing to refuse to say you're sorry. Right? It's, it's, it's another thing for, you, for this, this ref who made the call to refuse to say, hey, I didn't do anything wrong, even though the NFL ends up finding him. And we in Detroit have this like collective, oh, so much so, that I don't know if you're driving around. Can you show those pictures for us? You guys remember these? Like it's the celebration of our angst, right? We were done wrong. Decker reported. Everyone knows it. And the line should really have been 12 and 4 at the time instead of 11 and 5. And we know the feeling of injustice. We know what it feels like to be the recipient of someone else's failure. And for someone else to not take responsibility for the harm that they caused. You see, failure to take responsibility of our wrongs leaves us in dysfunctional relationships with others. Do you hear that? Our inability to take responsibility for our wrongs leaves us in dysfunctional relationships with others. And, most importantly, it leaves us guilty before God. More importantly, most importantly, The inability to take responsibility for our actions, for our harms, for our sins, leaves us guilty for God and deserving of punishment. The gift, though, is that God has given us this gift of confession. This opportunity to, with our voices, with our hearts, with our minds, with our souls... Admit to him that we've done wrong. Admit to others that we've done wrong. And without confession, there can be no forgiveness. Right. So today, as we are continuing our series entitled Confession, Erasing Shame and Experiencing a Renewal, we will see how King David, after he had sinned big time, after he had blown it big time, how he walks through confession in hopes to receive forgiveness. Remember... Two weeks ago, we looked at his sin. David committed adultery. Then he tried to cover it up by murdering Uriah. And it's not until Nathan comes and and confronts him and says, hey, you've done wrong. You're guilty before God. And it's at that point, David, with his tender heart, comes before God and writes Psalm 51 as his confession. As him owning up to the things that he had done wrong. You see, confession requires that we take responsibility for our sin. Confession requires that we take responsibility for our sin. Let us not forget that the Bible clearly teaches us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of God's standard of perfection. That's what he says. He says, you must be perfect. In every way, you must be perfect. In thought, in deed, in desire, all of those things must be in perfection. That's God's standard, and you and I never, ever measure up. So confession and repentance should be a part of our daily activity because it opens the doorway for forgiveness, which, in the end, is our greatest need. 
Now, we're going to turn to Psalm 51 today, and we're going to look at just at verses 3 through 6. So let me read this to you as David shows us three ways to show, own up to our own sin. This is what he says in verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in the truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. So as David is walking through this, he shows us three ways to own up to his sin. The first way that he owns up to his sin is he acknowledges that God is just. He acknowledges that God is a just God, that in his judgments and in his justice, he is perfect and he is right. For David says in verse 3, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. You see, by his own admission, David was guilty of sin. And he describes in this few short verses, he describes his sinful behavior with different words. First, he says sin. Right? Sin is simply missing the mark. That can be intentionally or it can be unintentionally. But it's not meeting the standard of perfection. That's simply sin. But then he goes on and refers to his sin as a trespass or a transgression. Those two words are are kind of the same word, but they mean kind of the same thing. It's the person that knows the law, that knows God's rules. And it's the person that willfully chooses to disobey. When you walk up to a a door and it says, do not trespass, do not enter, you see the word before you know what you're not supposed to do, and then you trespass or you transgress when you say, I'm not going to listen to that. Instead, you open the door and you walk through. That's what David is talking about, the type of his own sin. Not only does he understand that he misses the mark every single day in his life, but he knows that there are times in which he knows the good he ought to do, and he chooses not to do it. But then there's the third kind of sin, which is that of iniquity, which is even worse than knowing the good that you ought to do and not do it. It's knowing the good that you ought to do and choosing not to do it, but not doing anything about it, but staying in it. But instead of saying, hey, I need to turn from this, you're like, no, I'm doubling down and I'm going to sin. I'm going to sin big and I'm going to continue on. And we see that in David's life. Right? Not only did he, just, he, did he just commit adultery, which is a terrible thing, but he knew that's what he shouldn't do, and he continued to do it, and yet he did it, and then he continued on trying to cover it up and all these other things in his own life. He continued to sin, and he continued to not care. But now in Psalm 51, David is coming clean before God. He knows that though his earthly actions have caused a relational collateral damage, his real offense was against God. Yeah, he hurt people in the process, damaged relationships in the process, but at the end of the day, he stands condemned before God because he has sinned against God. He clearly knew God's standards. 
There was no questioning about it. There was no gray area. I don't know how the Bible could be more clear that thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Like, that's clear. Like, there's no, well, maybe he said, maybe he meant. No, it's clear. And David knew that. Thou shalt not murder. I don't know how you could be more clear. I, I, don't, I don't know. But yet David knew God's law and he willfully chose to continue to follow through that he violated God's law and it didn't seem like it even bothered him. After he shattered the lives of an innocent couple, it's not until about nine months later that after all of this take place that Nathan comes to David and David's eyes are open to the depths of his sin against God. You see, conviction, we need conviction in our lives because we're not going to see our own sin. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, you and I are blind many times to our own sin, so we need conviction. And so when conviction comes towards our actions, our attitudes, our desires, when those convictions come, we must examine ourselves against the word of God. And sometimes that comes through people, like it came through Nathan. Sometimes it comes through preaching, I pray that when you come on a Sunday morning that you don't just sit here and you're like, oh, that's, that's a nice message. I really enjoyed his illustration. No, you should be convicted. The reason that we're preaching the word of God is because this is the standard to which we measure our lives. And every week, you and I do not measure up. If you do not come on a Sunday morning and feel convicted about something in your life, you have no spiritual life or you're just not listening. Because this is the word of God. This is the standard and you and I miss the mark every single day day let us not forget that so conviction comes through the word of god it comes through people it comes through preaching it comes through the holy spirit it comes through our own personal study of the word of god conviction gives us eyes to see that we've missed the mark it gives us eyes to see that we've messed up and then what comes next is the beautiful gift of a feeling called the feeling of guilt where we feel that we messed up. We feel it. We know we've missed the mark. We know that we are not perfect. And the greatest need in that moment when we mess up and we feel guilt is forgiveness. That's what we need. When we feel like we've messed up, when we've missed the mark, and we've missed, maybe missed the mark 10,000 million times in our lives. I don't even know if that's a number. But you know what I mean? When we miss the mark, what our greatest need is forgiveness. But the gift comes through confession and repentance. That's the amazing thing. That's the way God has designed it. We need God to show us our sin Otherwise, we will never acknowledge our sin. The challenge in our day is that people try to deal with sin in all the wrong ways. See if you can follow with me on this one. You know, we live in a world right now that, that those caught in sin, those that are living sinful lifestyles, demand that their sin is affirmed. You hear me? People need their sin affirmed. And so they're like, I'm, hey, I was born this way. Yeah, you're right, we're all born sinful people. 
Like we, I have my own taste for sin. You have your own taste for sin. Yeah, I'm born a sinful person and I'm in need of a savior. Please do not affirm my sin to make me think that I'm somehow okay because I was born this way. No, absolutely not. Second way is that people deny, dismiss, or are defensive about their sin. They deny the fact, well, I haven't done anything wrong. I, I, I didn't, I, who, are you to, who are you to judge me? Who made you God? Who gave you the law and be able to speak into my life and tell me that I'm wrong? Who are you? Right, there, there are two types of people in my experience. There are two types of people when it comes uh, to conviction in our life. There, there's the person that is naturally defensive and then there's the person that's naturally guilty. Right, that, that person that's guilty is like, hey, you handed in your report like, and you forgot to dot your eye and the person's like, oh no. My life is over. Shame on me. I'm so terrible. Like, that's the guilty person. Then the other person's like, wait a minute. Yeah, I saw your report too. You did the same thing, right? Like, so we have people that are like defensive or we have naturally guilty people. And the fact that when we walk through denying or dismissive or being defensive around our own sin, that's when we know we're like running down the wrong train. The third way that people do it and mess up with it is they blame others for their sin. Right? You don't know the boss that I have, right? You, you don't know, so I've got like, to do this in order to survive, right? This person did this to me, so I, it's, it's my only course of reaction. It's my only follow-through. It's the only thing that I can do, so we blame others for our sin. And the fourth one is that people sometimes believe that they have to forgive themselves. Now, this is really tricky because we do wrong. We harm others in our lives, and when we come to the point where we think that we have to forgive ourselves, that's not the right response. And let me give you that that's like a broken glass thinking that it can fix itself. You follow me? That's, that's like me going to myself and saying, Hey, Jeff, why don't you forgive yourself for like denying God? Or, hey, Jeff, why don't you forgive yourself for being mean to your wife, right? It, that, that's the wrong way. It's, it's the person that has been harmed is the one that has the ability to forgive, not the harmer. The harmer is in need of forgiveness. So the one that does the harm needs to go to the one that they have harmed and say, would you please forgive me? I messed up. Then the person that has been harmed or offended or violated has the opportunity to give the forgiveness. The forgiveness doesn't begin in you. Forgiveness is from without. So when conviction comes, this is the proper way, and we see David doing this here. When conviction comes and we feel guilt, our response should be confession, repentance, and seeking forgiveness from the one that we've harmed. That's the way it's supposed to go. Like you mess up, own it. Oh, I, yeah, I messed up. And then we go to the one that we messed up to and we say these three words, I am sorry. Is that in your vernacular? Is that in your vocabulary? I am sorry. I blown it. I messed up. I messed up big time. I'm sorry that I hurt you. I'm sorry that I harmed you. We seek forgiveness. 
Can we do something today? Can we, in our hearts, in your heart and in your mind, can you acknowledge the reality that you have the ability to hurt others? Acknowledge that. You have inside of you the ability to hurt others. You have inside of you the ability to sin against God and to disobey God. Though you don't want to, you still have that ability. And guilt is the feeling that you feel when you mess up. So if we can agree, like each one of us have the ability, though we don't want to, each one of us have the ability to do wrong, to hurt others and disobey God. Right, so then what David is walking through here is what we should be walking through. Because even though we have the ability, we do mess up. And what David is doing in verses three, three and four here is he is agreeing with God. He is coming from the side of where he was opposed to God in his disobedience. He's now saying, I'm changing sides. I'm coming over to this side and I'm agreeing that God, you are just and your judgments are right. I was wrong, you are right. He's acknowledging his, what he has done. And if you and I hope to experience forgiveness, it begins with acknowledging that God is just and that God is right and that we are guilty. When we acknowledge that God has the right to set the standards of morality, when God has the right to set the standards in all areas of our lives, when he's able to say, this is what holiness looks like, when we agree with that, and when we find ourselves not measuring up, that brings conviction in our lives, it brings guilt in our lives, and it should bring about the need for forgiveness. You see, the goal of God's justice is not human damnation. It is restoration and relationship with him. Right? God is not trying to say, here's the standard. You can't measure up, so just be damned. No, he's a loving God that wants to be in relationship with us, but can't be in a relationship with us because we sin. He is holy. We are not. But yet he provides forgiveness. The whole goal of it, the whole goal of us feeling guilt is so that our relationship with God can be restored. The whole reason you feel guilt in your marriage to your spouse is so that your marriage can be restored. So that you can go to your spouse and you can say, I'm sorry. Or you can go to your friend and you can say, I'm sorry. Man, the second way in which we own our sin is to confess our fallen nature. Look with me in verse 5. David continues on, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now what's important for us to understand here is David isn't suggesting the activity of his birth, that that, that was unrighteous or that it was scandalous. He's not critiquing his parents' relationship. David is expressing his sinful nature. David, in, as he's continuing to confess before the Lord, he's saying that he has been sinful since birth. That taking on this sin nature makes him incapable of doing what God desires. It's his acknowledgement of that. 
You and I have to understand that from our birth, the moment that we had breath in our lungs, we not only had the capability of sin, but we would choose sin and we will choose sin. That's just who we are. I mean, you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be a sociologist. You don't have to be a psychiatrist. All you got to do is like have kids. Right? And those little babies that are so innocent when they come out of the womb and they're like, they're the cutest little thing in the world. Have you ever thought about how much potential of evil is in each child? You don't have to teach your children how to sin. Right? You don't have to sit them down and say, hey, Tommy, like this is how you sin. This is how you cheat in school. Let me show you all the ways that I cheated in school. Right? We don't do that. Our kids, we naturally, because we have a sinful nature, we have a disposition towards sin, and we just walk in it. We just live it out. I love how Romans chapter uh, 1, verse 30 says that we are inventors of evil. That's what it says about us. Like, we're little inventors. Like, we sit around and we're like, how can I do wrong today? Total world domination, right? Like, we, we're inventors of evil. That's what the book of Romans tells us, is that if left alone, we, uh, to our own devices, would do evil. We would do evil. Why? Because we're selfish. And we don't want other people getting in the way of our feeling good and happy and having pleasurable experiences, but everyone gets in our way. Just drive on 696 at rush hour. It's the most evil place I know. People are not walking in the spirit or driving in the spirit. See, the king's statement here is a further act of confession and repentance because it shows his full reliance on God. David understands that he's fallen into the pattern of sin. He's not seeking to justify himself. He's not seeking to make excuses, but he's reminding himself that he was born with the tendency to sin and he will sin. He's not saying, hey, well, you made me this way. Why did you make me this way? No, he's acknowledging the fact that he was made this way. You and I have sinned and it's like each one of us have our own sin and whatever it looks like, maybe it's pride, maybe it's lust, maybe, I don't know, but you've got your own bentness towards sin and maybe it's the same bentness your parents had towards sin, but you're born with it. When you came out of the womb, you're like ready to go be an idol factory, you're ready to go be an inventor of evil, like that's the course that you're set upon. And you're desperately in need of salvation. You're desperately in need of forgiveness. So let me ask you a question. Is there anyone here today that's perfect? I mean, because if you are perfect, then you're exempt from this sermon. Right? You're like, okay, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I, I know none, none of us are perfect. Right? But here's the strange thing about this, is we know this. Even in our experience, we know the person to our left or to the right. Or we spend any time with anyone. You know that the person that you're in relationships with or friendships with, you know that they're not perfect. They know that we're not perfect. But why is it then that when we are not perfect, we get so down on ourselves? 
Duh. Right? You're not perfect. So when you're not perfect, why do you get so down in yourself? Why, why do you look at yourself and you're like, Lord, why did you make me? God knows already. He, he's not surprised by the fact that you're sinful. He's not surprised at the fact that you walk in your sinful nature. It doesn't surprise him. He knows it. David reminds us that we are dirty, rotten sinners from the core. The question then should be, what do we do about it? Because it does leave us in this place where we know that there's something wrong. We know that there's something wrong. And the world only gives us two options. The world gives us the option of self-love or self-loathing. And both of those are lies from the pit of hell. You see, what they seek to do is both of those seek to care for our sins by mentally medicating our sin nature. Not dealing with it, but just mentally medicating it. I love how John MacArthur talks about uh, and describes our culture of self-love. He says this. He says, we live in a culture of self-love. To put it simply, a culture that is consumed with self-love, ego-building, self-esteem, feeling good about yourself, thinking you're important, thinking you're valuable, thinking you're a hero, thinking you've achieved something, thinking that you're worthy of honor. We are drowning in awards for everything imaginable and unimaginable. Parents are consumed with boosting the egos of their children with every imaginable means, as well as boosting their own self-worth and self-value. This is the generation of self-lovers. Just love yourself. Just love yourself. No one else is going to love you if you don't love yourself. You know what that is? That's straight up pride. That's all it is. That's the oldest sin in the book. Right? That's straight up pride. Self-love equals pride. Second one that we see, because in self-pride, there's no need for a savior, right? If I can just love myself, if I can just accept myself, if I can just do all that, build up my own ego, then I don't need a savior. Because my salvation rests in me. But then there's the other side of it that the world tells us, yeah, maybe it's not self-love, maybe it's self-loathing. And what this does, what this looks like, our, our culture says that devalue your worth, that the self-loathing denies the fact that we are made in the image of God, that I am, it's the one person that says, I will never be good enough to be loved. No matter how much I work at it, no matter how hard I try, no matter how much I run after it, I will never be loved. Well, that's depressing. That doesn't lead me to the cross. That just leads me to say, well, there's no hope. So either I don't need a savior or there is no hope. But I think David gives us a third option. David gives us the option of loathing our sin. Not ourselves, but our sin. It is the sin that separates us from God. God loves you. God made you with a reason, with a purpose, because he loves you. And he knows you're a sinner. But yet he still loves you. So what we should do is in our lives is loathe our sin. Like not be ashamed of it, not, not push it under the rug, but say, I'm a sinful person. Lord, here's my sin. 
And when we do that, guess what that does? It brings us into relationship with the God that loves us. Like that's the thing that works and this is how it all works. I'm not perfect, you're not perfect. The problem is that you and I are not holy and we stand in judgment before God because our sinful nature and seeing ourselves properly helps us better understand two important verses in scripture. There's a lot of them, but for the sake of time, I just wanna pull out two. Remember John 3.16, the one that you learned way back when you were a child. For God so loved the world. That means that God so loved you. Because in the word world is your name. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You see, the way in which God cares for your sin and the way in which he provides reconciliation It's through his son, Jesus. Jesus came and lived a perfect life, right? Jesus came in every way that you and I are sinful, Jesus was not. So in all of his attitudes and all of his actions and all of his desires, Jesus honored the Father. But he came not just to be perfect for himself, but he came to pay the penalty for sin, The Bible tells us that your sin and my sin, all of it, the sin from your past, the sin you're currently doing right now, and all the sin that you're going to do in the rest of your life while you have breath has been paid for on the cross. That Jesus endured the wrath of God. He took your punishment, he took your penalty, and Jesus died on the cross. But God saw his sacrifice as enough that he raised him from the dead, and now Jesus is alive. And by doing this, what Jesus did is he put to death, death, and he paid the penalty for sin. Now, just because Jesus has done that doesn't mean that what Jesus' work on the cross is effective in your life. You and I must do something with that. We must come to Jesus and confess that we are sinners and that we need him to save us. And when we do that, the Bible tells us that when we trust in Jesus in faith, we are forgiven. And God no longer looks at our sinful acts. Instead, he looks at the righteousness of Christ, even as you and I continue to sin. So that we come to the New Testament, another verse, not only for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Romans 8, 1 tells us, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. If you're in Christ and you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've trusted in him, there's now no condemnation. God is not looking at you saying, hey, you're an enemy. He's looking at you as a child. That's my child in whom I love and whom sins are forgiven because of the blood of Christ. So our greatest need is to be made right before God and it only comes through confession, repentance, and faith in Jesus. The third way to take responsibility for our sin is to receive the wisdom of God. Look at me in verse six. David writes, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. See, David here is acknowledging the grace of God in his life, both in God's good will towards him, the fact that delighting in truth, meaning that it is by God's grace that he's opened David's eyes to see the beauty of the truth. That's a gift of grace. 
to see that the gift of God, the truth of God is a gift. We need our eyes to be opened by the grace of God to see his truth as the standard for our lives. But then, not only God's good will towards him, but God's good work in him. That is to know wisdom. You see, truth and wisdom come together to work out in a man, to to make the man or woman into the person that God wants them to be. Because we need the truth of God. We need the standard of God to know that. And then we need his wisdom in how we're supposed to live that out. David's goodness was not done of work of his flesh, but it was a work of God in him. I love how Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, it is God in us. The, when the moment that you receive Jesus or, or call on Jesus' name for salvation, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells you and gives you the power to obey. But it's not you obeying, it's you surrendering to the power that is in you that actually walks out in obedience. So it's the Holy Spirit that transforms us from the inside out. You see, church, we must be reminded that confession is a gift. Because it allows us to own our sin, but it also provides us the opportunity to experience forgiveness. In confession, we are turning ourselves over to the care of God in order to find forgiveness and freedom. When we relinquish our hearts to God and his transforming power, he changes us. There's a book I've been reading entitled The Voice of the Heart, and Chip Dowd, the author of it, says this. He says, the deeper the harm before forgiveness, the deeper the relationship can be when forgiveness is granted. Did you hear that? We'll read that again. The deeper the harm before forgiveness, the deeper the relationship can be when forgiveness is granted. This is true not only with our relationship with God, but our relationship with others. I know as I look at my own life, the person that I've harmed the most is my wife. And yet, she loves me. And yet, walking through those cycles of forgiveness, the cycles of confession, and then when forgiveness is given, when I cut her deep, I think about all the people that I've harmed, she's the one I've harmed the most. And so she has the deepest wounds from me, but yet she's the one that I want to come to every single day. Why? Because she's forgiven me over and over and over and over and over again. She shows me love. She shows me affection. Though I hurt her, though I harm her, though I don't measure up to her standards, when you walk through that, it makes those valleys so deep, but those deep valleys connect us in such a deep way, and that's even what we can experience in a human relationship. How much greater can we experience it in a heavenly relationship with the God of the universe? We harm him every day, and yet he says, come on back. Just come on back. Just come on back. Don't run. Don't, don't cover yourself in shame. Don't like run away. Don't, don't think that I don't love you, that I don't care for you. No, just own it. Just come back. Just come back. Just come back. Just come back. Man, 
Like, why do we run? Why do we run? I'll tell you why we run, because we're prideful. We don't want to make mistakes. And yet we do every single day. This morning, I just have two questions with you before we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. First question, are you right with God? Are you right with God? Have you come to the place of acknowledging the fact that you're a dirty, rotten sinner and that you need salvation through Jesus Christ? Have you, have you, have you come to that point? If you haven't come to that today, that's what God is asking you to do. To finally give up control of your life and say, Jesus, I trust you to save me from my sins. Or maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you know that, yes, you've been made right because of Christ's righteousness, but there's unconfessed sin in your heart right now. There's, there's envy, there's pride, there's other things that you're like, okay, God, you don't see it, I don't see it, it's no big deal. But today, it's the thing that's been on your mind as I've been preaching. Are you ready to confess it today? Be right with God today? Receive the forgiveness of God coming clean today? Second question, are you right with others? Is there someone in your life that you have harmed and you know it? I'm not talking about being harmed. I'm not, we're not asking, that's, that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about the fact that you and I have the potential for doing harm and really, really damaging people. And we can do it unintentionally. But are you aware that you've harmed someone and are you unwilling to say, hey, I'm sorry? Now, and I'm not talking about the flippant I'm sorry, right? Well, I know that as a child. I, I knew that, you know, my parents are like, hey, Jeffrey, why did you do this? I'm like, I'm sorry, 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 I'm sorry. Right? That's not really being sorry. That's just saying a bunch of words that kind of push it along down the road. Instead, when you own it and it's been brought to your attention, you look the person in the eyes, you grab them by the ears, and you look at them, and you say, I'm sorry that I hurt you. Will you forgive me? And guess what? They may say no. They may not be ready yet to forgive you, but that's not on you. Your responsibility is to look people in the eyes and say, man, I'm sorry that I hurt you. I'm sorry I said that about you. I'm sorry I thought that way about you. I'm sorry I did that to you. And that's freeing. It is so freeing. Church, let us be a confessing church. Let us not hold back. Let us, I know you're a sinful person. You know I'm a sinful person. And when we spend time together, we're able to see each other in that. So let's just own it. Let's walk daily through confession, through repentance, and through trusting in the Lord. Just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I think it's appropriate that we do so because it ties so neatly into the fact that David, as he's writing Psalm 51, he had to trust in a promise. Like his actual forgiveness was kicked down the road to the, to the eventual lamb that would take away the sin of the world. He didn't have Jesus at that time. He only had the promise of the one that would come. But you and I have the one that has come. We live on this side of the cross knowing that Jesus has come to do the work of forgiveness in our hearts. And it comes through confession. So today I thought it would be appropriate as we do the first Sunday of the month to celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
And let me remind you before we celebrate it just how meaningful it is. Jesus knew the work that it was going to take for, to forgive you of your sins. And so Jesus went to a cross. And the night before he goes to the cross, Jesus gathers his disciples in the upper room together. And while they're eating the Passover meal that they'd eaten years in the past, while he's doing it, he now gives them two elements with new meaning. First, he takes the bread and he says, this bread represents my broken body. You see, sin has to be punished. In order for God to be a just God, he can't allow sin just to be tossed by the wayside. It had to be punished. And it was punished in Christ. But then Jesus takes the the cup and he says this cup is my blood which is given for you meaning that through the shedding of blood there can be forgiveness of sin not only having our punishment paid but we're forgiven for it it's as though it never happened so that's why Jesus is so important to this church that's why we preach Jesus every single week because Jesus is our hope Because without him, we're still dead in our trespasses, our sin, and our iniquities. But thanks be to God for Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you know us. Thank you that you know us in our evilness. Thank you that you know us in the filthiness of our sin. And though our sin repulses you, we don't repulse you because you love us. And you did the work to save us from that which repulses you. God, you did the work. We didn't. We did nothing to earn this. So this morning, let us be reminded of your sacrifice. It is your broken body and it is your spilled blood that provides us the opportunity to look at you and say, Abba, Father, what a gift. Father, help us remember the price that was paid for our salvation this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.